pale horse. The man who sat on him was dead. And hell followed with him. You're killing me, man. Welcome to Declarations of War. Your host, Alexei Card, joined by my co-host, Artemis Albosa. Howdy, howdy. Just the two of us for this episode. We are here and we've got a lot to talk about. First off, I want to give a shout out to the Centipede Collective for their strong Dark Horse showing in the Alliance Tournament. I really love some of the comps they're putting out there, and they are doing really well for an alliance that I believe is the first time they've ever entered, and I doubt many people knew about ahead of time. They've also got a pretty cool logo, and... My shout-out goes to Obel Q, Obel K, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, but anyway, shout-out to you, dude, for dropping a can in my wormhole to say hi. Well, that's a little creepy. Well, you know. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, I mean, dude hops into a wormhole, does his due diligence, checks out all the structures in the system, finds one, recognizes that it's my corp and that it's mine, so he just drops a can to say hi. Says Declarations of War Rocks. It's like, right on, man. Appreciate it. Oh, it's a fan of the show. Okay. Yeah, he's a fan of the show. Wow, it's so weird that he just happened to find it. Uh, and our sponsor, the Eve Onion, EveOnion.com. One of the top articles right now, what to name this major war of 2018? And that really is the question, isn't it? It looks like they have some leading... Uh, I don't. It's not exactly a poll, but they're basically taking people's temperatures, getting the leading names out there. There's the New War, the Everyone War, the Post-Pravi War, and Dino D-Day. Whoa, 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 whoa! You, you missed. You missed the name. The name of this war is the Name War. How? Do, that's it. That's what it is. It's the name. I, I prefer calling it the Trinosaur War, and as a talking in station says, how are you turning against your own show? <laughs> the Trinosaur War is only appropriate if you're speaking about the Southern Front, similar to how Holy Meteorite is only an appropriate name for the coalition of alliances fighting particularly against Legacy in the South, not as an inclusive term to include NC, GOTG, CO2, etc. As a whole, this is the name war. We can happily agree that the Trinosaur Front is a fantastic name. However, that is not a good name for the entire war itself. Fair enough. Well, head to eveonion.com. Put your uh, opinions in their comment section. Let us know. Let them know. What do you think the name war should be named? Or if it should just stay, the name war. That's eveonion.com. We break the news of Eve Online. All right, we had a poll. Who will win this war? The war. The war possibly to end all wars, but probably not. Hopefully not. Your options were Imperial Legacy or the Holy Meteorite, which I absolutely hate. It's not working for me at all. 73% of the audience believe Imperial Legacy, and I have to agree. Yeah. For, for one particular fairly undeniable reason, and I guess we'll get to it, but... The sheer economic power that is Goonswarm and their ability to put people in and replace Titans, to replace Keepstars, it's unmatched and probably unmatchable. Uh, like, I get where you're going. I think it has more to do with numbers, though. I think 
the the economic power of Delve has gotten to the point that enables them to leverage their numbers on the super capital battlefield. And so I think that is why they'll win. But I don't think like they'll win because they have a bigger war chest or because they have more income and can replace Titans. I think the rental empire, the the war chest of the defending allies, at least in the northern front, is large enough that it won't matter. What matters is that goons have more numbers. Now they have more numbers in super caps as well. So they're going to be winning fights. And speaking of fights, our top story... The Battle of X-47. You may have heard it talked about to death, but it is worth every syllable. This was a incredible battle. Over 10 trillion-esque dead. And remarkably, no node crashes. Which is it incredible was... for a battle of that size. Yeah, I mean, like, of course it was like 1% tie-dye. Modules weren't working. Massive response times, like... I was talking to a few people who were flying Titans in the battle, and especially from, well, we should mention it. So the defenders were NC, GO2G, CO2, etc. They were defending their Keepstar, which was an X-47. And this battle could happen because the iHub in X-47 had been reset. So the strategic index, pardon me, the strategic index was reset as well, which meant that you could no longer online a Sinojammerin system. You have to have a strategic index high enough in order for you to do that. And, and that is, so this that is in pure was, blind, by the way, for everyone who doesn't immediately know where X for Set is. This is a northern front battle. Indeed, and in fact, this is the, the staging point of NC Dot. So it is significant to a certain extent. But basically, Imperial Legacy could commit their supers to this, is why this fight happened. It's because for previous timers... Imperial Legacy couldn't commit their super force or for the onlining of the... What's... Do6? I always forget the name. The onlining of the Imperium staging Keepstar. That one, uh, the Northern Defenders decided not to engage their super capitals, but they chose to engage in this particular battle of X-47 because they had the advantage of the force multiplier of the Keepstar. And the biggest factor that that made in this particular fight was Tether. Or at least that was the hope of the defenders from the looks of their fits. So they did a thing that was different from what you'd normally see on armor supers. That is that they fit armor hardeners as opposed to passive hardeners. Active hardeners, that is. So you had Imperial Legacy who had their armor supers. They had active hard or pardon me, passive hardeners in their low slots, which meant they had less resistances. And they also couldn't, like, overheat their hardeners if the game would respond and they noticed that they were getting shot at. But another important note is that on the supers and the titans of the defenders, they fit capital emergency hall energizers, which, in theory, are a fantastic way to combat doomsday volleys. But in practice, when there's a 10 to 15 minute delay on inputs to the game, even if you see yourself getting mass redboxed and you hit the button, you're dead before the game responds. That's if it even decides to activate your module. Yeah. So the tether made a role in the defenders planning for this battle because they plan to have the cap for the active hardeners. They plan to have the cap for the CEHE, which requires a significant amount. Like if you're fighting other dreads, which is usually where you see this module used, if you cap a dread out, and he doesn't have enough cap boosters to instantly pop to get up to that cap level, he can't use his CEHE. So 
you in order for that strat to work, you have to have the cat to run it. And with the tether, they could nearly guarantee that they could do that. It's also worth noting that there were, um, well, there are a couple of things. Number one, there's been a bunch of drama over faction titans being docked up. First of all, like, I don't think anyone in Imperial Legacy could honestly say that if they could have docked up their Moloch, if they could have docked up any of the faction titans they had there, that they wouldn't have. The fact of the matter is Imperial Legacy committed and they couldn't get out of it. So even if they wanted to dock up, they couldn't. Whereas the Defenders had the opportunity to dock those Faction Titans, and once they realized that they couldn't use their CHHEs, they couldn't use their Active Hardeners to their advantage, they docked them up, because why give a massive Iskwar advantage with no real benefit from it? And even without the CHEs, it was just immediately apparent that while the Defenders had scored a lot of early first blood in the fighting, the numbers of the Goonsworn fleet meant they were catching up at a fairly rapid pace. And, uh, you know, once that that tempo was lost, that was sort of when the defenders made the call to start disengaging the more more valuable uh, ships. It was just not worth it for them to stay. I don't disagree that they made the right call there. I'm surprised they didn't just disengage the entire fleet rather than just the faction ones. Um, They should have probably quit while they were ahead. They couldn't disengage the entire fleet because goons did something crazy and they dropped a load of super capitals on top of the Keepstar and on top of the Titan Blob with heavy warp scramblers to try and tackle them. So the uh, yep, and uh, very key for everyone: if you are warp scrambled, you may not tether. Well, you have to be warp scrambled above your warp core strength. I found this out; is it's a very important point. So I thought that the heavy warp scramblers were just so that you couldn't warp them off to another structure, even if you were scrammed by something and couldn't tether. But actually, it's so that you can't get tethered at all. Like, if you were scrammed by a rifter in your titan, because you have such high warp strength, warp core strength, you can still tether. At least so I am told. But the basic mechanics rundown here goes like this. Keepstar has a PDS. The Titans and stuff were dropped at zero, which means that any Dictors, regular Dictors going in there dropping bubbles, gets PDS'd away. Not an issue. Especially if the Defenders are disengaging, no more fighters on grid that they care about saving. Dictor bubbles, ineffective. You can try and drop Hicks, but the Keepstar will shred the Hicks. It's got its own fighters, it's got Ewar in the mids, plus there are copious numbers of subcat fleets on grid that could shred Hictors really freaking quick. Then you can move up to capitals to try and cackle these things because like we mentioned you need that high enough strength of scramble strength and capitals have a module called the heavy warp disruptor heavy warp scrambler which technically battleships can fit as well but it takes some doing and they have i think it's six per scram warp strength so it takes a couple of them fit to tackle a thing but then you run into the situation where super capitals are really good at doing a thing and that thing is killing capitals which means the only option left is basically to drop super caps in order to tackle other super caps. And that's exactly what goons did. Unfortunately for them, a couple of vendettas dropped with those super caps, subsequently died, and uh, that did not look hot on the killboard. This is an interesting evolution of the cap meta. Kind of an inevitable one, I guess. Now that, like, Titans are the new dreads, super carriers, the new regular carriers. 
but I kind of like it. I, you know, normally what the meta would be is you would see these super carriers at a nearby citadel, like a, a Astro House or a Fortizar that they could, or sometimes a Keepstar with these larger groups that they could then sit on and deploy their fighters and fighter bombers from range with relative safety. Goonstorm says, nah, none of that. We're going point blank range, heavy tackle, try to maximize the kills. It's very aggressive and it was very interesting and I really liked it. And it seemed to work out. So hopefully it is a tactic that is repeated either by themselves or other groups. That said, all in all, I believe the both sides came away basically dead even. But Goons did win the timer? Or did not Goons win the timer? did win the timer. So the X-47 Keepstar has been pushed into its final timer. Even, like, FC's leadership from the defending side basically doesn't expect it to survive. It's expected that this Keepstar will die in final timer. If you asked me for my opinion, I'd say that I don't expect a big fight to happen over it either. I don't expect that the defenders will commit their super caps because there's no safety net. We've had this fight before and there was no node crash. So there's no expectation that that will save you if you start losing badly. It's too far away from downtime. So downtime hits, that doesn't save you. If the defenders commit their super caps and do not win hard, then they could lose the majority of their super capital force and i just don't think that's something that they're willing to do right now so i i don't expect this will be turn into a massive battle if goons drop a load of supers and they have a bunch of dcs you may see a lot of isk loss because of like dc supers getting nuked or something crazy like that they're still going to be fighting over it no doubt people are going to be coming into getting on kill mails people are going to be trying to kill those people but i don't expect this to be another battle of x47 we should also note with the uh, armor timer that the first Moloch ever died. So that's a thing. Yeah, well, I clocked in at what about five hundred bill? Yeah, value five six hundred. At least that's the the Z kill number on it. As far as the actual value, who knows? Yeah, you'd have to find one on sale to be able to figure that out. <laughs> I think the the number that I heard was something around two hundred and sixty bill for the BPC alone. This is a faction titan, if you haven't seen one, which I imagine most of the people listening to this have not. It's the Blood Raider Titan that drops from the faction soit or excuse me, the NPC Soitios that spawn down in the Delve area. Well not just in Delve anymore, CCP changes, they spawn everywhere. And I think the Ghost Legion super capital fleet that was nuked by Snuff Branch or Tinal. Um, it happened a few weeks ago, but they were trying to run a Blood Raider Sodio up there. So CCP on region locked it, if I recall correctly. I actually want to double check myself on that just to be sure, but I'm fairly I don't think that's true, because I know what they did was add one for the Garistas, um, like a, di- a variant using Garista rats and tactics. But I don't think the Blood Raiders spawn all over the place. Okay, so... Looking at the players' features and ideas, most recent patch, they are able to spawn everywhere. Hmm, I'll stand corrected. I've not seen one in Great Wildlands yet. I need to get on that. <laughs> it's not likely, but um, it can theoretically spawn anywhere. Well, anywhere in Nulsa. These are insanely hard to run, by the way. If you have dreams of getting yourself a Moloch BPC. Uh, be prepared to work for it. 
Uh, unless you have like super capitals. I know the Garistas ones could be blitzed with just a few titans. It's kind of hairy. I know that um, when some MC dudes tried to run it, one of them went out in the hall. Didn't die, but it was um, quite a moment. Apparently, if you have enough harpies, anything is possible. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Battle of X-47. Uh, fairly landmark, one of the largest battles in EVE history. Uh, this war is definitely delivering on the major engagements. Server... Shitty tie-dye, remarkably stable overall. Not nearly the same amount of problems that we saw in the previous battle of similar size. And, uh, you know, kind of a... I wouldn't even say it's a fair victory for goons. They they won, but it was an even trade on the battlefield. They won the timer. They're probably going to come away with this Keepstar kill, which I believe will put them ahead if you're looking at strictly ISK. I... I agree with Art, there's probably not going to be a huge fight over this, although I really want there to be. There's just no point for the defenders to try. Goons can just power through and wind up killing the Keepstar itself. What the defenders will probably want to do is anchor another one somewhere and redo this process all over again and try to win that middle timer. Well, another Keepstar that belonged to GOTG has already been transferred to NC Dot, so likely that is going to be their new staging. I don't know exactly, and I don't recall exactly in what system that is in, but probably very close to jump range. If it's not within one jump, like one direct jump, Keepstar to Keepstar, then we may see some interesting hunting going on for Keepstars ma- or for Super Capitals making the move. But there's already another Keepstar up under NC Dot's name, ready to receive their Super Capital force if and when they choose to move it. And I guess that's a good enough transition to talk about, like, the rest of the stuff that's going on in the North apart from this Keepstar. Uh, there are a number of Keepstars around, and one of the biggest factors in the fact that they're still around is the Sov War. So as we mentioned at the start of this discussion of the X-47 fight, it could happen explicitly because the iHub had been killed, the Strategic Index had been reset, and a Sinojammer couldn't be online. And so we're seeing the Sov War begin to heat up in the North, as of last episode, and in fact, as of up until a week ago, there were very few timers being generated in the north. Like, a few systems were consistently being hit, but it wasn't. It didn't seem like a big focus. It looked like goons were just cleaning up trash around the area, getting some morale victories, getting dudes pumped up, getting stuff moved in, setting a plan, maybe? I'm not quite sure. But now they've started sort of mass reinforcing Fade and a little bit of Pure Blind as well. They've also been hitting Forzars in the area, and they're, they're starting to win some of these solve timers. So we'll have to see how this develops, but it's, it's going to take a while. Unless them winning solve timers consistently leads to a massive morale drop, I don't see them steamrolling quickly, but I could see uh, an iHub and a Keepstar system going down every week to two weeks, and therefore a Keepstar dying every week to two weeks going forward. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, and we have this noted down. Imperium is like, oh, it's not about space. They don't want to conquer this place. They don't want to evict, necessarily. But at the same time, they're doing all the actions that would kind of lead to those things. Savor being one key component of that, but also just relentlessly battering on GOTG's morale. I believe they're also engaging in pretty relentless camping of their NPCing systems. Yeah. So we're seeing a morale offensive, we're seeing a Sav offensive, we're seeing a Citadel offensive, 
We're seeing deployments of massive both super armor and super shield fleets. That's a lot of pressure for GOTG. They are being heavily supported by PanFam right now, but if that support were to waver or if their own internal morale were to slag and their participation started to drop, there's really, like, they could, like, Goonstorm could just accidentally themselves into two or three regions really quickly. It would not take much. The problem is, I don't think they could hold that space. Like, they Who could... would take it from them? <laughs> Honestly, PanFam could take it from them if they cared. I don't think that, unless they find some new allies to install there, I do not think that Imperium could hold that much space. You just can't use it. You cannot use it effectively, and moreover, they'd be spreading themselves across half of the map. It'd be not trivial, but it would definitely be an option for a smaller entity to come in and take some of that space, because they would not be able to properly defend all of it. I think while they say that they have, they're, they're doing this for content revenge, I think they are going to be taking the space at least temporarily, but they have no intentions of really committing hard to defend it. They'll defend it for the content, They'll defend it because they want to get revenge on their opponents, but I don't think they have any intentions of like fighting to the death of their alliance over this space, is basically what I'm trying to say. Well, no, of course not. It's not their home regions or anything, but think of how well they're doing now as attackers. Imagine them with the iHubs, them with the Sinojammers, them tethered to the Keepstars. Yeah, that's a good point. But I would counter by saying that this is also them being able to focus on it because they've got Legacy down south basically holding the fort and PL is down south, which was the only reason that this war is happening to begin with, at least on this front, is because PL moved their supers down south. There's a big question still hanging in the air of as we look further down south, we're seeing momentum shifting, we're seeing Legacy beginning to go on the offensive, at least in the Tenerifus area. Sov is getting reinforced. They're focusing, I think, on Centipede Caliphate and Wormageddon was what was reported by the Noeden report. And they're starting Not the Garden Pest Coalition. You leave those guys alone. <laughs> oh, it's a fantastic name. Is Blades of Grass part of that? I really hope yes. Grass is part. Yes! Fantastic. Speaking of which, they just anchored a Keepstar down in Tenerifus. Hot uh, damn. In 16am. Yeah, we'll see how that's out, but we may be seeing some focus shifting from the attackers that is Holy Meteorite towards Faith Abolis area. We've been seeing some Sov and some faction Fortizars died a little bit earlier, a few weeks ago. We're starting to see some timers crop up there. So it may be that the Holy Meteorite Coalition has decided, okay, we can't take Legacy head-on anymore, so we have to sort of just shift around and move faster than they can come and defend. Because basically they've got, they've taken space in Immensi, they've taken space in Tenerifus, and Legacy has to do something about that. Legacy has to make the choice, do we clear them out of the existing regions where they have a foothold, or do we focus our efforts on preventing further advance if they shift, if the attackers, Holy Meteorite, shifts their focus to a new region like Faith of Ballas. But we'll see how that develops. The general sentiment, the general feeling is that momentum is shifting towards Legacy, and so eventually they will push the attackers out of their regions, out of their space, and stabilize. And then the question becomes, when that happens, does PL move their supers back up? Do they do it safely? And how does that change the war? Similarly, what does Legacy do? Because Legacy could theoretically move supers up. 
I don't think they honestly could, though. They don't have the super numbers that Imperium does. They can't have a super fleet at home and a super fleet deployed on an offensive war. If Legacy deploys their supers elsewhere, it's going to be like Delve was when Delve moved their entire super fleet out. It's going to be hunting season for all of the groups down there. Especially if they had just won a war versus like Skill Yourself, Volta, Try, etc. You betcha they're going to be hunting their whales. So I... If the war down south is won for Imperial Legacy, I still don't think that that means that the war up north is going to go even harder for Imperial Legacy, or even easier for Imperial Legacy. I think it's going to get harder if PL makes it back up safely. What are your thoughts? I have been unsurprised by how easy both sides have moved their super fleets back and forth from top of the map to the bottom of the map. I think it's pretty reasonable that we could see Legacy move their supers up for big fights and move them back down. I don't think that's an unreasonable prospect. Whether they'll actually do it, I don't know, but this war has proven that it's possible. For big fights, sure. Do you think that the supers are only important in the big fights, like having them there all the time, which is what Yell would be in a situation to do? Does that have any significant advantage over just being there for the big fights? Like, for instance, for an armor timer, if you don't know for sure that you're getting the shield timer to go through, that's one, maybe close to two days of notice. Can you move a super fleet across the map effectively multiple times in order to be there for the armor timer? We've seen NCDOT and Goons both relocate their super fleets from the north to the south during the course of a single fight because of tie-dye. So yes, this is a thing that can happen. Yeah, but it's worth noting that they got waterboarded pretty heavily through those fleets. Sure. I'm not saying it's not Im- impressive or without risk. I'm saying it's it's been demonstrated as very possible. That said, Legacy may not even need to. What if they if they just bring the subcaps, that could still be a great advantage. Especially when you're talking their numbers. Is it really though? I mean, looking at X-47 as an example, what role did the subcaps play in that fight? Ah, very little as a Titan on Titan brawl, but they can, for instance, generate a lot of timers with very little risk. You know, there are other things that subcaps can bring to the table. That's a very good point. It, it could be a, a momentum shifter. I don't think for the actual fights the subcaps would really make or break the difference, but with everything that goes on behind that, the camping, the timer generation, uh, you know, uh, rescuing tackled supers that get out of position, that kind of thing could be relatively impactful. Or worst case scenario, they feed and increase the Norse morale and rest in peace this momentum. But I think that is rather unlikely. Then again, I thought a number of things were rather unlikely, and they happened anyway in this year's Alliance tournament. Such as it being entertaining. I wouldn't go that (laughs) far. Like, maybe 20% of any given match is entertaining. Boy, we're starting this off on a downer note. But legit, like, the first one, two minutes of a match, for the most part, that's the entertaining bit. But once the first team loses, or once the team loses the first ship, you kind of know, okay, that team's going to lose. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take them to die. 
I don't know that I've... I mean, yeah, it has it does seem that way a little bit. But there have been a handful of interesting comebacks. I think it's been... I don't know if this is good or bad, but like looking at the comps, the better comp isn't always winning. It's definitely still coming down to execution. Even comps that looked like they were winning turned out not to win, such as Snuffed Comp today. Uh, they did really well, and then just blew it. I don't know. There's no other way to say it. Uh, they had that match in hand and just could not seal the deal. So this isn't without its surprises, but most surprising for me in general is I really thought the metas that we would see out of the rules, particularly the Highlander rule where you can only bring one of each ship, I thought that was going to lead to a very boring, just kind of lackluster tournament and, you know, it seemed like a lot of people agreed because they didn't sign up for it. But I have been pleasantly surprised with how watchable it is. I mean, people have been able to do some relatively interesting things with that restrictions. Still don't think it was it would be better than, you know, uh, more thematic comps that previous tournament rules allowed, but it's not awful, is what I'm saying. It's not awful, but I don't think it's better than allowing two per ship type. Per ship, yeah, two per ship. I think two per ship better allows you to two per ship plus three bands i should say it allows you to have comps that make sense that are like pleasing to the eye easy for the viewer to understand like that's a thing we have to care about here it's that a lot of the problems that the alliance tournament has seen in viewership is because it is very very difficult to understand from a viewer perspective and if you're a viewer especially one who's not that familiar in eve and you see a list of 10, potentially 20 different ships on that field, and you've got maybe 30 seconds to a minute to figure out what's going on, not to mention also seeing the bands on play, like, that's freaking impossible. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. And it's got to be hard on the teams as well. We have seen a couple comps come into the meta, but they are... They're all, like, not great in their own ways. Uh, we've seen armor rush and control teams. Armor, definitely popular this year. Specifically armor cruisers, the new Triglavian ships have seen a lot of use. Uh, we've seen remarkable numbers of armor recons, like curses, rooks. Uh, we've seen ashimus, which we... I mean, the last tournament they were cheap on points, so you saw a ton of them. Prior to that, hardly ever. They've seen multiple matches. We've seen a lot of hacks and assault frigates with the new assault damage control. We've even seen some Tech 1 logistics frigates because they're only a single point each. In one match, they actually did well. I think we're seeing hacks a lot because the battlecruiser points were increased. So you don't have the battlecruiser as an option for projected damage. And also, it's difficult to run T2 Cruiser Logistics now. With the triple bands, T2 Cruiser Logistics are banned quite often, plus your top end costs a lot of points now. So you sometimes just don't have 17 points to spare. So we're seeing a lot of Logi Frigs, and we're seeing a lot of T1 Logistics Cruisers. And with that decreased rep output, you can somewhat make up for it by having the T2 Resist Profile of a hack. I think that the the lower logistics rep output is making Hacks T2 resist profile more valuable to teams now. Yeah, a little bit. 
The hacks are an interesting an interesting ship. Um, some of them are really great for the tournament, and some not so much. Like, the Sacrilege has really proven itself to be a mainstay of the Alliance tournament. It's one of the best screening ships you can get. It's almost impossible to nude off. It does pretty good damage while it's screening. It's got all the mid-slots you could want, and it's got a really strong resist profile. We're starting to see some Zealots thrown in there. Zealots, not as great, because they're very cap-reliant. However, they still have a fair bit of mid-slots. They're still pretty tough. Their biggest asset is damage projection. While they're screening a target, they can probably shoot whatever you're primarying as well for pretty good damage. The inclusion of some of the other ships, like the Munin, for instance, I've seen in the tournament at least a couple times, not as clear, particularly in the armor comps. It is not that great. I mean, it still has projection like what you'd look for from a Zealot. So if you're looking for projection, the combo of Munin Zealot is somewhat appealing. I'm interested in like the Demoses that we've seen way more often than I'd expect. They've got good tank, they've especially got good self-tank. And one of the interesting things is with this armor control, armor rush comp, it's really tending towards armor rush. A lot of these are using, as opposed to like your battlecruisers hacks for projected damage they're front-loading their dps into battleships you're seeing a lot of like balgorn vindi paladin lashak type teams where sure they've got some projection out to roughly 60 kilometers but they really want to be on your face and so the demos is really enabled to shine in that particular scenario where it doesn't have to gimp its fit either by losing a lot to the fitting cost of rails or by downgrading the rails and losing damage. It can fit blasters and just brawl it out like it was designed to. The thing is, if you're doing that, and this is often with these Galenti rush teams, if they're just doing pure blaster rush, they fall into this trap where they get screened themselves. And I think that's the important distinction. If you think of the Demos more as a screener ship and treat it as such, it's more successful than if you're trying to build a comp around close-range blaster damage. Well, Which always seems great on paper, but rarely plays out well. I think it's worth mentioning that it fares a bit better in this particular meta because you can't use T2 logistics cruisers as much. So T1 logistics cruisers have less high slots for remote reps, like the Executor, which is quite popular, the most popular T1 logistics cruiser. It only has three reps. So if your Demos is shooting a Sinesis, which has it tackled, either the logistics pilot of that Sinesis' team has to commit a third of its rep output in order to keep that Demos tackled, or it lets the Sinesis die and suddenly the, the Demos can add its DPS to whatever the Demos' Lashak is also shooting at. And this problem gets even worse when you're talking about Logifrig teams, because Logifrigs have extremely short range, relatively speaking, to their cruiser counterparts. And so if a Demos is screened off by a Sinesis, and Logifrigs are busy trying to wrap up their Balgorn, which has got a Lashak sitting on it, if they want to go save that Sinesis, one or both of them has to literally move away out of rep range of their Balgorn in order to go and save the Sinesis. And if they split up, well, then the Demos can tackle one of them and kill it because the other one is otherwise occupied. Like, I think the ability for hacks to sort of be their own entities 
provides opportunities for logistics pilots to have to make very tough decisions on where to put their reps. Because there's so much damage coming in from the top end of these teams with Vindies, with Gun Balgorns, Paladins, Vin- or Lashaks, that if a hack tackles something off on the side, even if it gets screened, if it can apply damage to whatever is screening it, very tough decisions have to be made about where to send your logistics resources. Yep, and we're seeing those uh, logistics frigates. I would say they're not doing that well. Uh, half the time, they're just being ignored completely because the rep output is so low and they're so easy to keep away from the fight by you know, kind of pressuring them away from primary targets. If they do close, they tend to get killed. So they're trying to kite more. And uh, they're just not doing that great overall. There have been a few matches where they have sort of really come into their own, especially uh, kiting battleship damage. We're seeing a lot of quad battleship comps. They apply relatively poorly to frigates. So sometimes these guys are able to stay alive a lot longer than you would expect they'd be able to. They'll kite out of range. They won't die. Battleships will swap over. They'll come back in. They'll wrap that target a little bit. As a um, generally speaking, they've been struggling. As a counterpoint to that, go watch the Losechnias Lopen versus Slice match if you want to see battleships versus Lodgy Frigs. That was freaking hilarious. Um, but I will mention, like... Is that the one with the just the brick-tanked shield battleship mm-hmm. count? They would have won if they would have shot the freaking scalpel. <laughs> if they had shot the scalpel and stuck on it, because they tested its tank, and they're like, oh, we can't kill this thing, let's try and shoot through its reps. But they couldn't break the stuff fast enough, and they ended up, like, LSH would have won that match if they had shot the freaking scalpel after they killed the Kirin. I disagree, because they had started shooting that scalpel, and they could not kill it. It was too they, sm- it, too small, too fast. They killed it very easily later, though. So I think that they just, like, something. somebody wasn't shooting, somebody was out of range or on reload, or something changed between when they tested its tank first and when they killed it later. And I honestly think it was just, like, they should have stayed on it longer because that thing was overheating or something that it couldn't continue to do. But in any case, like we're seeing the Logi frigs being used and T1 Logi frigs being used in order to save points to do the crazy quad battleship quad bomber comps, which are just cheese comps, which are nuts. But I think they'd do a lot better if armor control wasn't in the meta, because we're seeing that one good way to counter quad BS quad bomber is to have some like hacks or battle cruisers with protection in order to pressure down those bombers and then have one massive beefy high DPS battleship like a Lashak go and put pressure on the other battleships. You know those bombers can't be sitting at zero with the battleships, they just get shredded so they have to kite. You also know that the logistics frigates have limited range. So the Logi Frigs have to make a choice. Do I try and keep my battleships up underneath the opposing battleships damage, or do I try and keep my bombers up underneath the opposing projected like cruiser size weapon damage? And I think that's the way that we're seeing counters to the quad BS quad bomber strats. And unfortunately, like that is close enough to the meta that it's not unlikely to see it happen, even if a team isn't expecting this quad BS cheese comp to come at them. How great, by the way, it was the bomb run from uh, Killa's team. 
the the quad bomb run just completely obliterated. Oh yeah, I remember that. Holy shit! Shout out to Killa. His team's been crushing it, man. Good job. His team is Templus Calcif, by the way. Yeah, long overdue. Well, they've always been relatively good in the tournament, but uh, they're really going next level under Killa's guidance. I think. Uh, let's talk about some ECM because that's been another theme in the meta. These ECM teams not doing too well, <laughs> but people keep trying it. You just can't bring enough of the good ECM ships with these Highlander rules to build your whole comp around it. And whoever keeps telling people that Widows are a good idea in the Alliance tournament, just stop. <laughs> they're they're awful. Especially in the shield comps. Why in the world would you do that to yourself? Well, I you have to take the why. tank away to field the ECM, so you're either not fielding enough ECM to matter, or you're not fielding enough tank to matter, and it's so much points. I can tell you why people are running ECM comps, and it's because the link situation. Like, command ships and even battle cruisers cost so many points that you you can't have full links. Like, you either have to use a T3, which once again costs a bunch of points, or you're using command SEs. In the command SEs, you have to really gimp those things if you're going to fit triple link. Double link is okay-ish, but then you're gimping something. Either it can't effectively screen or it can't effectively tank. So basically, I think teams who are running these UCM comps in their brains are thinking they're not going to have info links. They're not going to have the mids for recibos. They're not going to have blah, 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 which is a good counter to ECM. Let's run ECM. And... That's a valid mindset, but I think your point is just too good that you cannot use enough of the good ECM ships. We've seen people try Rook Falcon. I think it worked once. We've seen people try Rook Tangu, which didn't work. We've seen people try Widows, which didn't work. It's I get the mindset. I get the the theory behind it where you're expecting lower numbers of links, less likelihood of recibos, Therefore, the ECM could be more effective, but your effectiveness is dropped because you can't bring double Rook. That's it. Can't bring double Rook, can't bring double Kitsune. Yeah, that's a good point. We have seen Kitsunes, we have seen Griffins. I haven't seen them be particularly effective, like the one year where we had the Griffin literally win a match by, was it a Golem at Jan? Oh, we we had a Griffin winning a match. I forget the team, but yeah, today... Uh, so go watch the matches for the fifth. I forget the team, but holy man, this dude is a hero. It was today or it was yesterday? It was the fourth or the fifth. Man, this guy, it was against another ECM team, but this Griffin went and jammed like all the relevant jams on the other side. It crawled his team back and just remained untouched. He was absolutely incredible piloting. Let's talk about the bracket. So we've seen, uh, to my to my surprise, we have not seen as many upsets as I had anticipated. That said, we have seen a lot of like good upper-mid-table teams go out early. Like Slice, for example, RVB, Dark Horse for mid-table. We've seen Brave go out already. So, <sighs> I'm still not happy with the meta, and it's pushing the cream of the crop to the top. But, that said... We've got Volta in the loser's bracket. We've got PL in the loser's bracket. We've got Test, Laserhawks, Templus, Calcif, Exodus, 
all in the loser's bracket. And you don't find that exciting? No, I don't find it exciting at all, because if you look at who they'd lost to, Laserhawks lost to Bright Side of Death. Uh, let's see. Shout out to my scalding pass process. <laughs> I mean, Bright Side of Death, for the record, did pretty well last tournament, too. But they've got some wonky comps, and they just generally aren't considered to be a, a top-tier team or a team on the level of what Laserhawks showed themselves to be last tournament. Who did? But they won, so I think definitionally they are on that level. If they're able yeah, to beat the framework tournament champions, I mean, you could say that, or you could say that this meta is so freaking wonky that their winning was really more up to who had the lucky choice of comp. Like, isn't that every tournament though? It's not every tournament because every other tournament has rules and a meta which is more predictable in the sense that it's easier to like. How do I say this? I don't have a succinct way to say it. And for that reason, I'm going to drop the point. But I'm not happy with this meta. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the uh, the rules that they have are almost the anti-meta. Like, they were doing what they could to prevent a meta. Yeah, By preventing more than like one that. ship being used. I don't like that at all. Bring back, players will find a way. Bring back two X of each ship. Bring in the bring in the three three bands so we can make keep things interesting. But this have to have ten unique ships nonsense. It hurts my brain. Maybe that's the problem. It just makes me make put forth too much effort to watch the tournament. Anyway, all right. Let's talk uh, more brackets. Uh, what's your highlight matches for next week? Highlight matches for next week. Samurai Sold Out v. Vydra is going to be fun because Samurai Sold Out just recently upset Volta and they're the ones to kick Brave down to the loser's bracket and they're the ones to kick LLLL, which were um, Chester's group. The barcode. Guys. Yeah, barcode down to the loser's bracket. So Samurai Sold Out, your like, favorite-ish team because of how quirky they were, may actually be legit good this year. I am really looking forward in the winner's bracket, Hydra versus Tuskers. That's my big match. That is going to be an absolute banger. Yeah. We got two like tournament innovators, former champions, smashing each other, and the winner will face either Bright Side of Death or Castabouts. And while I love Bright Side of Death and love flying with Bright Side of Death, I think. Uh, well, it's hard because they did beat Laserhawks, but there's still... I've got to feel like Hydra and Tuskers have both been to the dance before. They're really experienced teams. They've each had a very difficult road to their current spot. i got to feel like Bright Side of Death is the underdog going into that match. So if Hydra or Tuskers come ahead, they will probably advance. And so we'll probably see them in the quarterfinal would that be the yeah quarterfinals at that point so that's gonna be a very pivotal match losers bracket pl versus barcode i think is gonna be great laser hawks tempest calcif that's gonna be incredible and uh my boys centipede caliphate taking on try i love try i really want to see centipede win <laughs> 
Who did who kicks try into the losers bracket? Hydra. Okay. Which makes sense. I remember that match. I was impressed by how dominant Hydra was in that match. Watching Hydra's match versus Bastion, watching Hydra's first they didn't have a first match apart from Bastion, but watching Hydra's match versus Bastion with the comp Bastion was running, I expected it to be more dominant. But when they came out versus Tri, I'm like, okay, Hydra hasn't lost a step this tournament. They are a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> Honestly, I think Hydra beats Tuskers. Having watched Tuskers v. Few, having watched Tuskers v. Exodus, Tuskers came out on top, but it was a scrap, and it could have gone the other way. I don't think if Hydra faced Few or if Hydra faced Exodus, it would have been that close. I think Hydra <laughs> is definitely the favorite coming into this Tuskers match. Then again, yeah. we've only seen Hydra v. Bastion and Hydra v. Tri, so maybe we haven't seen them face a top-tier team to really test them. But Tri did kick Snuff down to the lower bracket, and people have said Snuff are a high-tier team. So Definitely an interesting tournament the way things are playing out. Okay. Uh... We're going to skip match highlights. Uh, we already talked about a couple in reference to the meta thing. I'd encourage you guys to go watch the VODs. Watch the matches. Some of them are remarkably good this year. Yeah, just watch the first two minutes and skip to the end, even though you'll know what it'll be anyway. Damn. No, there are legitimately like half a dozen decent matches that have happened so far. But... We were talking before the show, and I think both Alec and I agree there's a distinct lack of the ability for teams to make a comeback. If you start out on the back foot, if you lose the first ship, you're going to lose. And I think that's unfortunate. <sighs> my, my point was that it's it happened, it's been happening more than you think, but it's usually due to some kind of botch from the winning side, where they... they call a wrong target or there's some sort of piloting error rather than the ability for the team that's taken the loss to somehow do great counterplay. But it is happening from time to time. Anyway, so we've talked about the Great War. Now let's talk about the Wildlands War. I actually have a lot of stuff on this because this is what I've been spending a lot of my time on the past two weeks. Uh, as awesome as it is to watch Goons and Test and PanFam and GOTG and try to smack each other over and over again and 1% speed, it is a lot more fun to be engaged in a war with no tie-dye, where you actually have personal stakes. So that's where I've been doing stuff. Uh, when we last left the Wildlands War, uh, we had successfully defended NTAC-6 and had begun pushing back against Ebola, sort of a mini-counteroffensive to try to get some of their structures that were in neighboring systems the fuck out of there so they wouldn't have as many places to dock and stage and R-64 moons to mine and all that kind of shit. So that's uh, sort of what we've been doing. That counteroffensive has been continuing. It's mostly been centered around the system of 5FC, which was the same thing we were fighting over about a month ago. Uh, this war is extremely even with, you know, all the sides involved, so battles are kind of going back and forth, and we'll get into it here. Uh, first off, on the 22nd, we had re- or 21st, I guess, we had reinforced 5FC again. Ebola, uh, 
you know, they still had the moon. We we're reinforcing it. Tons of cap battles. They won the first fight there, about 30 billion to 15 billion, but we kept the timer going, which is key. Uh,. In 92 box, that's the staging system of our allies, Blood Covenant and Unthinkables. Ebola had a staging Astra House. They were trying to, you know, put that bad boy in there to give them that ability to do operations in 92 box. Blood Covenant and Inc., obviously not into it. <laughs> so uh, they're fighting over that. That led to a fairly major fight. One of the cleanest wins we've had so far. Bright Side of Death was on hand almost immediately with a large Macarial fleet to come in against Ebola. Ebola had put their caps on the field. Uh, they were defending this Astra. They were in tether range, but it just did not work out well for them. Uh, some of the one, some of the caps decided to de-aggro and tether up, which they did, but unfortunately it was the kill timer, so. Uh, we just bubbled them up and waited till it dropped, and then killed the rest of them. We won 20 bill to zero. No lost ships. And it's worth noting that there's no lost ships, even though I was sitting there in my rev, shooting bright side of death like an idiot, because they were sitting still, and I was told <laughs> not to shoot them. <laughs> you couldn't get the kill. Well, I got a number of them into, like, low shields, and then we'd swap to a capital target. Like, okay, I guess I shoot this capital now. But it was weird, because coming in from the... I was flying with Alex's side, obviously. And coming in, trying to get on the kills for uh, the Ebola caps, because this was in 92 box, because this was in the staging system for roughly two-thirds of the defenders, their caps were in that system. And so they warped the caps on the grid. And unfortunately, they got caught in bubbles and were quite spread out, were quite far away from the Ebola capitals. And so there was a point in time where you had anti-cap fit dreads who were called to shoot down subcaps. And when that call is made, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm not going to hit anything that's moving. Let's just look for stuff that's sitting at zero MS and shoot it. And I did manage to kill, uh, I think, an Armageddon or two. And I got a number of Macarials from Bright Side of Death into Low Shield before they managed to save them. That's hilarious. I <laughs> don't, shit, don't sit still in your battleships when there are dreads on field, guys. Like, granted, Bright Side of Death, they weren't expecting to be shot by their allies. Sorry, but still. I mean, just not staying still is just generally good advice, unless you are a dreadnought. Like, always be moving, even a little bit. The Alliance tournament teams have been making this mistake. Even just a little bit of movement helps reduce damage. You're telling me you haven't been moonwalking your dreads? Dude. Oh, are you, uh, are you moonwalking? Is... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> dreads just moving sideways, shooting out the side of... It's the best thing ever. I thought that messed with your tracking. Is that no longer the case? Oh, it absolutely messes with your tracking, but it looks cool. Mmm. I mean, priorities, <laughs> man. Priorities. Style never won a fight, but it never hurt. Well, I mean, it didn't hurt this one. <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, so this was in mostly carriers, I believe, um, with the defenders, and they just got wrecked. Uh, but the fight is not over. A mere two days later, 
Uh, we went in back into 5C for the final Athenor timer, this time Ebola no-shows. And capital Starmy, my corp, we anchor the replacement. The next day, Ebola does show. Uh, it's Serb Fleet versus Macarials, with I think one Dreadnought on each side, a fairly small engagement considering the rest of this war. Uh, Cure won the Isk War, about 6 bill to 1.3 bill, but Ebola won the objective. They killed the Athenor, and we didn't have any replacements, so they were available. The Moon was available, and Ebola wound up anchoring one, I believe, the following day. The day after they anchored it, we went back in and killed it. Uh, and this time, Blood Covenant had a replacement on hand, threw it down, and because we had nothing else to do with our fleet, we went and reinforced their Athenor in BY5. The following day, massive engagement in BY5. Uh, this was, I believe, the largest or second largest fight. I, I, I want to say it was the largest. It is definitely the largest that didn't involve any third partying. This was pure Ebola, Hell Legion, and the, a new corp that's joined up with them to help. I think it might be an all corp, but I'm not sure. Some mining group that has dreadnoughts. Um, versus Unthinkables, uh, Blood Covenant, Capitalist Army, and Artemis. <laughs> this was uh, just a, a banger of a fight. We had the Mac fleet versus their Geddon fleet. Things kicked off with the subs and then immediately upgraded. It was pretty much uh, just a smash-mouth brawl initially. Uh, key to the victory. So we won. Spoiler alert. I think the key moment was during the opening seconds of the fight, the Ebola Damnation pilot popped links while everything else was still tethered, so he was the only shootable target. And to keep him alive, their Lodgy had to untether, so it sort of snowballed the fight. We wound up popping it, I believe, with two shots, maybe three, but I really want to say two. And with that, their links were off the field, and I don't recall them ever bringing any replacements. And so Damn. the lack of links led to us being able to volley through their Geddens relatively easily, especially with the numbers that we had. Uh, Capitalist Army, Unthinkables, and Blood Covenant all pulled over 10 pilots apiece. There was also a Gone Berserk in that mix as well. So we were turning out pretty well. We had the numbers advantage on Ebola, and we're just blowing through Geddens. One, maybe two shots a pop, and they're gone. So once we had the subcap war well in hand, we brought in another wave of capitals to seal the deal on the dreads and facts that Ebola had brought in earlier. Their facts were not effective, again, because we were able to burst through those Geddens so quickly. That way, we, and because of that, we were not inclined to escalate on them. So we had, like, the dreads we were using to shoot it, the uh, Athnor, I mean. And then we had the subcaps. We were blowing through their subcaps with no additional caps. Once the subs are gone, we brought in the entire rest of our capital fleet just to kill the dreads and the facts that they had sieged. Ebola did attempt a counter drop along with that corp that I was mentioning before. They did some long-range sniper dreads pretty far off us, and they very nearly killed one of our dreads as well. But we managed to save that guy just in the nick of time. We repositioned the fleet. And we wound up killing these dreads too. And it took a little bit of doing, but we did it. Uh, it so that was one of the biggest wins of the war, all told. Over 40 billion killed versus a little, just over 6 bill lost. Eh, a little under 6.5. And, and we also got the timer. 
They... Fighting doesn't stop. The very next day, in the system of 168, which is the staging headquarters of Hell Legion, they were attempting to online an Asbel. Our fleet formed to counter it. Ebola brought way more caps than us and decimated our fleet. Um, during the course of the fight, the decision was made to just focus fire on the Asbel and actually kill it instead of going in to fight the Ebola fleet and start trading ships. So they won a pretty one-sided 22 and a quarter bill to just over 10 bill, but the Asbel did die. So we did technically win that objective. I would say it's arguably not worth it, but that's it is what it is. <laughs> Ebola still strong enough to win these fights. There's a couple of days of nothing happening. And then on the 3rd, we had reinforced a Raitaru and a Raitaru in Losek. Both of them are coming out around the same time. The one in GW was a few hours beforehand. Ebola formed up really strong. Like, really, really strong. We didn't even engage. And in fact, the fleet stood down, which was annoying for me because I really wanted to fight in the uh, Losek timer. So scrambling around to get the fleet together, Batphone back black legion for that second timer and ebola had shown with like a massive cap and dread fleet multiple super carriers the first time they've used super carriers in the war but we were not able to get uh, like into a position to fight them like to draw them out and they signed them to safety nothing wound up happening we did wind up bringing black legion in but it was for like peanuts kills nothing really significant um just that capital dunk probably would have happened if the platforming was successful. It just never materialized. Ebola wound up saving both structures. Like like I said, negligible losses. Like probably less than a bill. And that's where we're at at the moment. Uh, hellacious fighting all in all. I, I believe we're slightly up on ISK. We're definitely up on objectives. We went from being on like near death's door this time last month to now we are slowly but surely pushing Ebola back into their headquarters systems. So it's, it's a bit of a struggle. You know, we do often need help from unthinkables or bright side of death or black Legion, but uh, we've also proven with that fight in BY five that we're able to handle it on our own as well. So this is a really interesting war. There's a lot of dynamics going back and forth. Ebola, by the way, has their own bat phone now. They have uh, Purple Helmet of Warriors, I believe, uh, spending a lot of time with those guys doing stuff. So all this is going on. It's one of the most interesting conflicts I've ever been a part of in EVE, and super excited and thankful to both sides for making this happen. It doesn't seem like this war is going to end anytime soon. Um, we just reinforced a new structure today. So we'll see how things go. I'll continue to update everybody. And uh, any any questions, Artemis, things the audience might want to know about what's going on? Well, I have a lot of questions. Um, let's talk about the ships that you guys are using. So we've talked caps, a lot of caps, and just about every single one of these fights, you've got faxes, carriers, dreads. It's worth noting that Ebola has a tendency to fit their carriers with a lot of capital nudes. Um, so that is a significant portion. In addition to their sub-capital doctrine, they're tending towards Armageddon's for when they want these cap brawls to happen. Mm -hmm. They are using Serbs. They are using sacrileges at one point. But those hacks are mostly for fights where they want to go in and see what they can do, but they don't plan to escalate from what I've seen. And you guys are using shield materials, which is 
very interesting to me. You are successfully sort of negating the facts that they're dropping. So that is a benefit of them. But we've seen in fights where you guys don't have the logistics backbone that you need to keep these materials up. You're losing them, and it's skewing fights in the favor of Ebola where it could have been a dunk. Yeah, it's definitely a high risk, high reward thing. I'm I'm not I'm not as big of a fan of the Mac in most circumstances, but I would have to agree it's one of the better tools for this job, simply because we are facing an opponent that drops faxes so regularly that we, we like normally I would prefer say Immunin for the maneuverability, uh the more sturdiness against battleship damage, the fact that it can easily outrange everything that they're flying except for Serbs, and it can easily tank the Serbs. But with the fleet sizes that we have, say a Munin Doctrine or a Loki Doctrine, would not have the Alpha Strike needed to burst through these battleships. Meanwhile, you know, if we're not bursting through them, it, like the fax reps that come in are so overwhelming, there's just no way we'll cut through it. So if we want kills of any kind, we have to go all in on, on long-range battleship artillery. And right now the Mac is the best platform for that. Fair enough. Looking forward from an outside perspective, looking at, well, someone outside of Benalony fleets, but if it is a strong relationship, or at least strong enough to have them on call between Few and Ebola, I would suspect that Ebola is going to be playing fast and loose with their super capitals trying to bait out the super capitals of, what are you guys calling? The Cure? And yeah. then bringing in few to dunk them. I think it's going to come down to, are your materials continuing to be effective at volleying through the subcaps, forcing a bullet to escalate to capitals, or just giving them an excuse to, because let's face it, that's what they want to do in order to continue the escalation and bait out your super capitals. But then the question is, if a bullet drops their supers, with the relatively low numbers that they have, can you guys still win the fight without dropping your own supers? Or are you ballsy enough to drop your supers knowing that a few bat phone is probably waiting? That is the question. <laughs> I will say that, uh, you know, at least on paper, there are supers within the cure. They've not seen combat use so far. And in fact, aside from Ebola showing the timer, I, you know, technically speaking, Ebola's supers haven't shot in anybody yet. So a lot of this is theoretical. And also, they haven't, I think they probably had the few bat phone ready at that, uh, the fight where they were using their supers, as you correctly surmised, but again, not been used in practice. So a lot of this, we're going to have to see how things play out. It's also the case that we're fielding more max than ever before, like pilots that were in typhoons or we're in shield canes or we're in like support ships they're more and more getting into materials as they're better skilled and better supplied so we are seeing higher quality fleets in general from cure especially in the subcap front i don't know how things are going to play out that's why this war is so interesting it could go a lot of different ways if you know if ebola continues to escalate in the way that they do you know there's also a lot of groups that would love to to kill their fleets as well. Um, can they survive this this war? Well, of course they're going to survive the war. They've been living in Great Wildlands for ages. They're not going to like fail skate or anything like that. 
can they maintain their dominance without using the super cap umbrella? That's the current question in my mind. And if they can't maintain their dominance without that super cap umbrella, the next question is, okay, they're deploying the super caps. What happens? And that I'm going to uh, leave to the history books for now. We shall see. I mean, it's it seems like it's definitely going to happen. I imagine the first time they do it will probably be pretty successful. Uh, that's my guess. It could wind up with one or, one or more of them like perma-tackled while bat phones are ringing off the hook all over the place to try to get super kills. I don't know. I, I would imagine the first time you do something like that, you kind of have the edge because your opponent wouldn't expect it. But certainly the next time, you know that the cure is going to be ready. And that's assuming we're not even ready this time because, again, we've seen them deploy these super capitals with the intent to use them on field, even if they never actually did. So now it's got to be in the back of the mind of every Cure FC that this is a possibility. Interesting times ahead, one way or the other. I'm going to keep you guys appraised of all the developments. Uh, about two weeks from now, when the next episode comes out, I will give you an update and let you know how things are going. Let's move into host highlights. My highlights are shorty. Uh, Flying Chesser's Retribution Fit. That's what I have written down. Uh, saw a retribution video that Chester put out where he and five other retributions with dual nano, dual heat sink, faction rep, excuse me, dead space rep, absolutely pick apart this this null sec fleet, including carriers. They got carrier kills and retributions. And I was just enamored with this, so I had to try it out for myself. And I am pleased. I had a partner, uh, Opus Magnum, of the Eve Onion, he has joined Capitalist Army with at least one of his tunes. We've been taking him out into that small gang environment that he's been craving. He's a little rusty. His positioning was a bit questionable for a few engagements, and he did wind up dying. So you would say on paper this fit was not great. But I was in the fit as well, and I was able to do some stuff that I can't believe I got away with just because of how tough the retry is when it's that fast. Uh, not that the tank is amazing. It's the combination of the tank and the disengage and the range at which you can start shooting some stuff. And I, I was just able to fight with confidence, like confidence that I could get out of a tight spot. And it's just fun to fly. I'd really encourage listeners to give it a shot. It's um, dead space, micro warp drive, faction point. You need this for fittings. Tech two beam lasers. A dead space repper, two heat sinks, two nanos, and locust coordinator rigs, tech twos. It's pricey, probably a lot more money than you're used to putting on a salt frigate, but give it a try. You'll have fun. Question for you. Yeah. Have you flown it with the upcoming speed nerf in mind? Uh, no. I wasn't really thinking about it, to be honest. We'll have to see how it performs after that speed nerf. How hard it hits your ability to disengage effectively. Probably going to be pretty bad because uh, it was fast, but not that fast. I I kind of want to get some snakes or some other way to get it above thirty five hundred. You're using Zoras, right? I was not on this fight. Mm. Uh, drugs? Nope. 
Ooh. So I I think, yeah, you get Zors, you get drugs, you could make up for the speed nerf and still have your confidence there, but that's just more risk you're pouring into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I don't know what Chesser was running in his in his head during that fight or anything like that. I was going with capacitor and I was going with gun damage as far as uh implants. And I didn't I really am not a big fan of the drug mechanic, so I don't use that that much. Really? Yeah, it's rare if ever. Not even the new like agency drugs? They're the ones that I will use occasionally, but it's really only if I have them hanging around. I will not go out of my way to acquire them. Since anti-pharmacon drugs and the new agency drugs came in, I find that I'm using them a lot more. I'd agree, like, I really hated the regular drugs, especially when they were illegal, so moving them was relatively difficult. I hated the fact that you get a bad roll on your drugs and you just lose the fight, whereas taking the drug means you're in a fight that you are probably struggling to win anyway. So it's like, what's even the point? You're Even if you take the drug, like that percentage increase that you get may not win you this fight that you need to take the drug for, and it could give you a role that just loses you the fight out of hand. There's nothing you could do about it. So I, I didn't use them. Um, but the agency boosters, the anti-pharmacon, it's interesting because they're expensive enough, especially the higher level ones of the agency and any of the anti-pharmacon, that after you win a few fights, you would have been better off just pimping out your ship fit than popping so many drugs. Exactly. So if it's a fight that you like have to win, like if you're in a major engagement, I honestly think these drugs in fleet combat are super underrated. Like passing them out to your fleet is a massive advantage, especially if you can rely on the fact that everyone has taken them because there are no downsides, so you know exactly what impact it's going to have on your fleet. You could just make all of your Mercarials faster. You could make all of your Mercarials volume more, and I think that's a huge impact, especially if it's an important fleet fight that you need to win. But for solo small gang stuff, if you're really interested in winning and not losing, and you've already pimped your fit to the max, drugs are a good addition. If not, maybe the lowest level agencies are good for you because they're super cheap. I wouldn't invest in anti-pharmacon, and synth drugs just aren't worth it. Artemis, tell me about your wormhole. Well, I'll, I'll admit that the wormhole exists, but I won't tell you much about it. Um, <laughs> I got very lucky. I went out on a whim, scanning through wormholes because I was bored, found a really nice one. I'm not going to say why it's nice. I'm not going to say what I'm doing with it. I'm going to say it's nice. It's nice enough that it's my host highlight and that eventually we'll probably have a few good conversations about it in the podcast. But apart from that, and my shout out to the dude who happened to stumble into it like two days after I found it, that was some crazy luck, dude. Shout out, thanks for dropping the cam. Like, that literally, I was tired, just drinking my coffee in the morning, undocked to go roll the, roll the static, and I see a can just off of my citadel. I'm like, oh, what is that? And it just says, Declarations of War Rocks. And that, it made my day, I'm not gonna lie. Fucking A. But, um, yeah, nice wormhole. That's my host highlight. That's that's all I'm gonna say for opsec reasons. <laughs> okay, maybe we'll get a a less redacted update on the next episode. 
That's it, guys. Head to declarationsboard.com to participate in the show poll. Leave a comment. Capitalist Army is recruiting. We can use all the help we can get on this war. Uh, despite that it's like three or four, sometimes five alliances working together, Ebola and Hell Legion still have a numbers advantage, just raw on-paper numbers, and usually on fleet turnout. Uh, although uh, we're, we're doing better. We're doing better. Uh, still, I would say, the underdogs in this fight. If you're thinking about it, you want to uh, make the jump to NPC Null, you want to hang out with other fans of the show, you want to be involved in the content that we talk about here in the podcast, Capitalist Army is a great way to do it. Hop into Capitalist Chat in-game. That is Capitalist Space Chat in-game for more info and our Discord link. Wherever you are, good hunting, listeners.